Hello and welcome to the podcast for the October issue of The Lancet Infectious Diseases. I'm Richard Lane and I'm delighted to be joined once again by TLID's editor John McConnell. John, let's start with an open label randomised trial and this is looking at options for malaria treatment in Burma. What was the point of this study? The standard for treatments for malaria these days are the so-called artemisinin-based combination therapies, ACTs. Artemisinin is the new kid on the block, if you like, but it's very essential that it's used in combination with another anti-malarial so that uh, resistance to artemisinin doesn't develop amongst the uh, plasmodium parasites. So there are now four standard artemisinin-based combination therapies available. And what the uh, authors of this study in Burma wanted to do is they wanted to compare the four regimens for their efficacy in treating Plasmodium falciparum malaria. And they also wanted to uh, include a loose tablet combination at the same time. Rather than having both drugs combined in a single tablet, you have separate tablets, uh, and these were for artesinate and and mefloquine. So there's five arms to this trial, which, as you say, Richard, uh, took place in Burma and involved about 800 or so participants. Thanks, John. Just before you go on and give us a bit more on the design and and the key results from from this trial, I'm interested about the region here, Burma. Is there anything specific about Burma, this part of Southeast Asia, relative to to malaria treatment? Well, I think what's quite unusual is that that um, there's more than one um, malaria parasite circulating in in, uh, Southeast Asia. So in uh, in Burma, you get um, both Plasmodium falciparum and Plasmodium vivax. Um, So you're dealing with a a co-endemic region, and you don't, even though the the greatest burden of malaria is sub-Saharan Africa, then the, uh, by and large, the, the sole parasite in sub-Saharan Africa, there are of course exceptions, is, is Plasmodium falciparum. So John, do go on and tell us a bit more about the, the methods and key results from this study. Well, a randomised trial are roughly about 150, 160 or so patients in, in each group. The primary endpoint was uh, recrudescence of malaria at uh, day 63. Um, there is a, a, there's a kind of wrinkle in the study in that they also included a randomization for some of the uh, patients to receive a single dose of primaquine at the end of therapy. Now, that won't actually stop people feeling ill with their malaria, but it will uh, reduce the risk of transmission during treatment. So what they found, in a nutshell, is that um, all the regimes, all the four, the five different drug regimens were, were fairly comparable. However, the artesinate amodiaquine regimen uh, had a higher rate of recrudescence than the other regimens. Um, and so uh, the conclusions which the authors draw is that artesinate amodiaquine is not recommended in Burma, and that's because the other regimens are, are more effective. Also, John, in terms of conclusions, uh, I noticed that Plasmodium vivax, the other form of infection in this region, is implicated as a complication. Well, that's right. I mean, one of the the most uh, common adverse event was infection with P. vivax after treatment for Plasmodium falciparum um, infection. And uh, in fact, there's a, there's a commentary that goes with this paper. And the commentator suggests that a way of dealing with this would be to actually have a more prolonged primaquine regimen. So rather than just giving the one dose, which, were, which is, is essentially to prevent transmission, uh, you give a longer dose of primaquine, which hopefully would deal with the, uh, the co-infection after the patients had been uh, any would deal with any risk of co-infection after pr- patients have been treated for their primary um, falciparum malaria. And just a final note on this one, John. 
these ACT combination therapies, are they now widely accessible, affordable in low-income countries? Uh, well, there, there is a little bit of an issue here in that they are, moves are afoot to make them as affordable as the, so traditionally, if you went to a pharmacist in, say, Sub-Saharan Africa, the pharmacist would be likely to give you chloroquine. But a chloroquine, of course, is, is really not very effective anymore. And so um, pharmacists should be, should be prescribing the a- ACTs. The problem is that the ACTs have been more expensive. Uh, therefore, patients are likely to uh, be able to, uh, there's a chance that patients will be able to afford the chloroquine and not the ACT. So moves are afoot to subsidise the ACTs to make them as affordable uh, and therefore as widely used um, as, uh, as, as good old-fashioned but pretty ineffective chloroquine. Thanks, John. Moving on, a research article looking at HIV or assessing HIV incidents in France. I was slightly curious as to, as to the background to this paper. Why a focus on HIV HIV incidents in a, in a well-developed westernised population like France, do you think? Well, even though um, the HIV um, epidemic in developed countries is pretty much under control, then it's very useful to know what's happening in different subpopulations. And of course, unless you monitor, you main, monitor and maintain constant vigilance, then there's, an, uh, there's a chance that the epidemic will get out of control. So what the authors uh, have done here is that they've tried to sort of reduce the gap between presentation of symptoms and when people actually become infected so that they know, they have, so we have some idea of the incidence of new infections so that we're not looking back um, through several years all the time at what's happened in the past and we have some idea of, of what's happening now with new infections. And what are the key findings um, from this? The key finding really is that uh, although the incidence of new infections overall in France is, is going down, uh, there is a problem in the population of, of men who have sex with men. Um, and so what these investigators have found is that around about half of all new infections are occurring in, in men who have sex with men, uh, that the in- incidence is continuing to increase in this, this subpopulation in France. And in fact, that, the, uh, that there's a 1% risk of all homosexual men in, in France uh, acquiring an a- HIV infection per year. So that, that's, a, that's a pretty serious risk. Even though the um, one of the other, if you like, traditional at-risk populations injecting drug users, although the disease, the, the epidemic there seems to be under control, there it seems to be, if anything, out of control. And the authors use those very words in, the, in men who have sex with men. And we really need to pay a lot more attention to that population. So finally, in terms of implications, there must obviously, you've already mentioned it, B, public health implications. Are are these data brand new with the publication of them in this journal or, or are there already moves afoot, you think, in France to try and tackle this uh, HIV concern, grave concern, in the men who have sex with men community? The data are supportive of what we has already been published from, say, the United States and Canada. Uh, there's a clear implication here that we need to do uh, much more about the education of that particular community of people. Uh, and that needs to be a ramping up of HIV preventive measures. The authors of a commentary which goes with the paper suggest that there may even be a role for using uh, antivirals in a, a prophylactic, prophylactically as, as well as using them to um, to. to to treat disease. So we really can't take our eyes off this this population for the time being. Next, John, a review. And this is looking at an interesting and quite appealing issue if you're a patient. And this is looking at the concept of needle-free vaccinations for influenza. Tell us a bit about this. I can see there'd be some obvious benefits for the patients because intramuscular injections are painful. And so another way of delivering 
the vaccine must be good from a patient perspective, but presumably there are some issues or drawbacks concerning efficacy. Obviously, flu has been much in the news in the past 18 months or so, uh, and uh, as has flu vaccination campaigns, there would be advantages in not just in terms of pain-free vaccination in uh, avoiding the use of intramuscular needles, uh, but also um, there's the potential here that if you have a different route for vaccination, then you wouldn't need to train medical staff in order to give the vaccine. So the alternatives are things like um, intranasal uh, vaccination, so a puff of dry powder up the nose, or or actually just swallowing a pill as a, as a means of vaccination. Now, the disadvantage the authors identify is the immunogenicity of this route of vaccination. So uh, people given vaccines by the uh, the nasal route or, or, or swallowing a pill, uh, they don't develop the same level of serum antibodies as they do if they're given an intramuscular injection, or in order to um, persuade the body to produce the same level of antibody, then you need to give uh, higher doses and you need to give more frequent vaccination. So, so that that is a disadvantage compared with the intramuscular routes, which we know is is immunogenic. So, John, how do you summarise, if you like, the conclusions of the author from this review and, and the possible next steps? Well, obviously, the conclusions are much more work needed to be done on possible adjuvants, which we can use to increase the immunogenicity in routes other than the intramuscular route. There is um, some, there are, one of the very promising routes is um, uh, the use of microneedles. So rather than going all the way into the into the muscles, you'd be introducing the vaccine just below the skin in, in essentially very, very tiny, tiny needles, which would be um, which would be completely pain-free and which potentially you could even sort of deliver through the post and all the person would have to do would, would just apply a little sort of patch to their skin. Uh, they wouldn't even realise that there would be no sensation really at all uh, that they're actually uh, vaccinating themselves. So, so these are p- possible ways forward in this field. Thanks, John. And finally, tell us about the leading edge editorial. This seems to be talking about a new medical discipline, mass gatherings, medicine. Tell me about this discipline and also importantly about an upcoming conference about that. Yes, well, mass gatherings, I mean, the classic examples of mass gatherings this year would be something like the World Cup, and they bring with them their own consequences. There's all the potential for disease transmission as people congregate from all over the world and they mix together and they return to their homes. Uh, There's uh, potential for very serious uh, injury in, for example, stampedes. Uh, This happened, of course, with a a pop concert in, in Germany this year. So what The Lancet has done in collaboration with the Vice Minister of Health from um, Saudi Arabia is we're organising a conference on mass gatherings medicine, which is taking place in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, in about a month's time. And of course, the Saudis have huge experience with uh, dealings with mass, mass gatherings because they have, to, um, they have to manage the Hajj pilgrimage every year. So it's very appropriate that we're tapping into their experience in order to bring together experts from around the world in the public health implications of the 